It can sometimes be hard to find fresh, engaging, and practical ways to learn about the Catholic faith that feel relevant to your daily life. That's why Ave Maria Press launched its Ave Explores initiative to help nourish your faith in ways that are meaningful to you. Check out the Ave Explores podcast hosted by Katie Prejean McGrady and make sure to subscribe. You can also sign up for all of the free content at AveMariaPress.com or by following Ave Maria Press on social media. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. In a world where forgiveness seems less and less possible because transgressions are rendered more and more permanent, how can there be a tomorrow? Or maybe we need to ask that question another way. Is there a Christian way to have a tomorrow? Professor Joshua Mitchell of Georgetown University seeks to show us what is at stake in questions like these. He joins me, Leonard DiLorenzo, to discuss his new book, American Awakening, Identity Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time, where he addresses the ills of our contemporary society, tries to chart a path forward, and does so partly in dialogue with great social theorists like Alexis de Tocqueville and Plato. This is Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. Professor Joshua Mitchell, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. In your book, American Awakening, you offer a diagnosis and really a sustained critique of identity politics. Now, this term identity politics is one that I'm sure we have all heard, but I suspect few of us really understand well. So here at the beginning, hoping that you can help us to understand what is identity politics and how does it work? Well, there are a number of terms that are used these days. We hear about critical race theory, intersectionality. What I've tried to suggest is that identity politics is the genus, the larger framework within which all these other things operate. And what I've noticed in the last 20 years is that suddenly, really beginning in the late 90s or so, people started to use the word identity. I'm old enough to remember when we would say things like, I'm an American. Mm -hmm. But now everybody, including conservatives who I think should know better and Christians who I think should know better, are saying, my identity is Christian, my identity is American. And I think that calls out for some kind of an explanation. So oftentimes, you'll hear the claim that identity means kind. So I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of person, I'm American, I'm Lebanese, whatever it happens to be. And so they say, well, we've always had identities. Identity is the term that's, that's been around right from the beginning because we've always had kinds. And, and that use of identity is innocuous, I think. It's not dangerous. But I don't think that's really what we're talking about these days when we talk about identity, or rather when the left talks about identity. Identity, in my view, is a relationship. It's a relationship between a group that is identified as stained and impure, and the the identity groups set themselves up against that. So you can go on the web, for example, and look at your intersectionality score. If you're a woman, you get a couple of points. If you're black, you get a couple of points. If you're gay, you get a couple of points. If you're transgender, you get a few more points. And this is an incredible experiment in trying to set up a kind of moral economy in which everyone has a status. I call it a spiritual eugenics because what's really involved here is an attempt 
to pick out the transgressors and to scapegoat and purge them. Hmm. And this is something I think that needs comment. So the scapegoat words that are used, the words that purge people from the community are racist, homophobe, transphobe, misogynist, hater, denier, Nazi, fascist, the list goes on. And, and these are words not just to describe a person. They're words intended to scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And of course, the scapegoat, understood theologically, Christianly, is, is Christ. And that is actually the crux of the matter here. We have a deeply deformed Christianity, which is still searching for a scapegoat, but it's searching for a mortal scapegoat, as opposed to acknowledging the divine scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. Hmm. So as you were just mentioning, you could go online, as you said, and and discover your intersectionality score, and you get points uh, for identifying, to use that word, identifying certain ways. But would it be true to say the one who gets zero points, so the prime scapegoat candidate here, the prime transgressor, is the white heterosexual male? That seems to be something you're bringing up at the beginning of your your book. Is this correct? Yeah, that's right. And, And I should be very clear right from the outset, I have no interest in defending white heterosexual male or any particular group as being pure or impure for that matter. Identity politics requires that we all, we lose our individuality. We become only members of a group. This is how we're understood. And, and the problem, as I've tried to indicate throughout the book, is that in this theodicy in which one looks for a mortal group to scapegoat, you may get rid of the white heterosexual male. You might purge him. You might get rid of the toxicity of maleness in the social body. But once you do that, once you, you, you shun men and, and the young ones are all playing video games and not making, offering anything constructive to society, you then have to find another scapegoat. Mm. Christianly speaking, you have the eternal divine scapegoat, Christ, who's available to all at all times. But if you make this an imminent arrangement, then once you purge the prime scapegoat, you still have this problem of stain, of transgression. Of course, this would be original sin, actually. And what, you're, what you have to do then is find a new group to scapegoat. And my argument is the next group will then be white women. The Karen meme is, I think, very informative here. It's the beginning of the attempt to, to show that all white women are something wrong with them. Then, as I've said in the book a number of times, they'll come after probably the black heterosexual male. And the way this is already happening is on the left, you have this move to defensive transgenderism and the claim that male and female are distorted categories that mm-hmm. they represent thought crimes. And of course, the civil rights movement with Martin Luther King, it was is well understood in the civil rights movement that you, the, the redeeming institutions through which African-Americans can come to rise up into the middle class and be healthy, productive members of this amazing American society, it's the family and the church. And it turns out that if you're, if you're all going to push this identity politics all the way and start defending transgenderism, you're going to have to attack the very institutions that black Americans understand you you must have in order to thrive. So it ends up attacking the group that provided what I call the template of innocence. My argument is black America provided the temple of innocence in the 1960s. And then the argument has been made that you go from uh, civil rights to women's rights, to gay rights, to transgender rights. And so they all bear, take upon themselves the moral mantle of black America. And yet, when you press this to transgender rights, you end up destroying the very institutions that Martin Luther King declared that we needed, that black America needed in order to thrive. Yeah, I found this to be a powerful argument in your book and a a really keen observation and insight, what you're talking about right there, that 
identity politics is sort of orchestrated upon the exploitation of the singular wound, as you put it, of the history of slavery in America. Could you tease that out a little bit more for us, how this is a singular, unique wound, and yet it gets played out over and over again and sort of misappropriated and misused for other purposes? Well, you look at all the other groups who want to wear the mantle of the civil rights movement, women, gays, transgender, they all had families. You can defend these causes if you wish, but generally speaking, the people who defended them, who defend them have families or had families. The slavery destroyed families. And without families, you can't build a civilization and you, you hurt people very, very badly. So the, the slavery wound is the singular wound in America because we had legalized means of destroying families. And, and my argument is that what we have to do is pay very close attention to that wound. I don't believe in collective guilt, but I do believe in collective responsibility, which is why I actually have spent a great deal of time in the last few years working these things through with Bob Woodson, who runs the Woodson Center, a civil rights movement activist from the 60s who finally said, I'm, I'm giving up on the race grievance industry and is looking for constructive ways to heal whatever wounds that remain. So it's a huge problem, and, and these groups are playing on the original wound. And what I've been saying now for some time is that Black America has more moral authority right now than it had during the Civil Rights Movement, because only Black America can rise up and say, no, you may not use our wound as a template on the basis of which you move from women's rights to gay rights to transgender rights. Now, I'll be the first to say that you know, women in, in a modern world, there are going to be all sorts of tensions about what it means to be a woman. I'm, I'm simply saying that if you're going to wrestle with these questions, you don't do it by playing on the template of, of slavery. You do it on its own terms. But that's not what's happened on the left, is they keep using the template of slavery. And, and my argument is that part of the reason why you had this fierce uprising of Black Lives Matter and the claim that Amer the 1619 project, the claim that America is systemically racist, is that the, the left, the Democratic Party, actually has a very serious problem. Because if they're going to push for transgender rights, they're going to alienate Black America. And so every four years, just before the election, you can count on the Democratic Party saying to Black America, we have your back, we have your back see how racist American society is. We alone are trying to save you from it. Then there's those other white racists who are bad people. And then, of course, Black America is, is forgotten in the next three years. And then the, the threats and the fears are brought out again at the beginning of the fourth year in preparation for the next national election. So this is really, really sick. I grew up uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a member of the old left. I think it's safe to say Ann Arbor was, along with Madison and Berkeley, was one of the hot spots right. for for the, for the left. Yeah. And there are a number of us older folks who maybe either came out of the left or still in the old left who, who look at what's happened now with the Democratic Party and, and the, the treatment of blacks. And our view is this is not what Martin Luther King had in mind. Mm -hmm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. My guest is Joshua Mitchell, professor of political theory at Georgetown University. We're discussing his new book, American Awakening, Identity Politics and Other Afflictions of Our Time. Professor Mitchell, instead of identity politics, you want to uplift, especially in your argument throughout the book, uplift and recommend the return and perhaps the rediscovery of liberal competence. How do you conceive of liberal competence? Help us to understand. Well, I, I spent some time trying to differentiate my position from that of 
conservatives, and those on the left. Mm -hmm. And this is a long and complicated issue. And I've had wonderful discussions with some of my now colleagues at Notre Dame who went to Georgetown. It's an ongoing issue. My concern about conservatism is that it oftentimes elevates tradition and doesn't recognize that traditions are broken. That if you take the claim that, that with Adam, something went very seriously wrong with the human race, then it's a little more difficult to defend tradition just by itself. So I, I'm not in that camp, nor am I in the, the left word camp, because the left in a way makes a different error, whereas the right oftentimes wants to say America is pure, our traditions are pure. On the left, you have a claim that America is irredeemably stained. And it strikes me that neither one of those are Christian. Hmm. That if you take the brokenness of man seriously, you will recognize that our traditions are indeed precious, but we can't idolize them. And it seems to me that the, the proper Christian position on this is to recognize that we have this inheritance that has been built up. But in the American case in particular, slavery is part of that. And so rather than than be on the right and say, no, pay no attention to the slavery question, or on the left and say, well, America's irredeemably stained. It seems to me that a kind of Augustinian position on this is the right one, which is that man is broken, the world is slowly being redeemed. We have a task in that providential unfolding, and that's to help rebuild the world in stewardship. And the, the word I use, of course, in the book is sometimes stewardship, but oftentimes competence. And what I'm troubled by is that in a healthy society, in a healthy American society, we would look to each other and ask the question, does this person have competence? Can I work with them? We would not ask the question, is this person black, white, male, heterosexual, et cetera? Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to start with that, that's fine. We all have these markers that we use to begin. But the problem is when you build a world where we don't have to cooperate with one another, um, then you can stand back and say, my identity is the precondition of our engagement. And of course, Tocqueville would have, well, though he didn't talk about this directly, he understood how this would emerge. Namely, when you build a society where everybody's looking upward to the powerful state and doesn't need their neighbor, you can actually conceive of a world in which people are so lonely and isolated that they contrive in their own minds what they are and what other people are or who other people are. And that becomes the precondition for their engagement. Well, that can only happen if you've got a state that's basically doing everything for you. But if you're living in a a, a Tocquevillian liberal world, and he calls himself a liberal of a new kind, then it doesn't really matter what race you are, what gender you are. We've got things to do together, and we can't do them without one another. Mm -hmm. So I think part of the reason identity politics has emerged is because we've got this lonely, isolated world where people are desperate not to lose themselves in a sea of anonymity. And so they go to 23andMe or Ancestry.com to discover who they are, what their identity is. Tocqueville says, in the democratic age, a host of arbitrary and artificial classifications will be invented to soothe the pride of democratic man. Hmm. So identities become, uh, have become these fixtures that we, that we invoke in order to declare who we are. And the Tocquevillian liberal position is, we don't yet know who we are. We discover who we are by building a world with others. We discover who we are by living actively within our families, within our churches, et cetera. So I'm, I'm much more interested in, in finding a way back to this emergent world where we don't really know what, who we are, and we don't even know what's possible. 
but we're not going to find it out unless we build a world together. And what's fascinating about identity politics is it's never forward looking. Mm. It never says what kind of world can we build together. It always looks back and says, look at the stains. Look how irredeemable America is. And it never proposes that we can build something together. Something you said there just made me think that this is really a, a call to the return of the need for one's neighbor, as you said. And it makes me think about the kind of formation that you sort of present throughout the idea of the kind of formation for this liberal competence. So I think it's fair to say education plays a part and likely a return to a more liberal classical forms of education would be recommended. But the sort of formation you seem to be pointing to for liberal competence is not merely a matter of formal education through schooling. It has to do much more or alongside that it has to do with face-to-face interactions, with sort of cooperative, collaborative innovation, with struggle in communal settings. And I suppose by and large, the experience of life lived in common with others. Would you shed some further light on what you have in mind there, how this liberal confidence actually becomes formed in a citizenry? So you're right. The, the education part is a small part of it. And I, I increasingly wonder just how much it is. I hmm. think that the, the education that we're really looking for is not something that we can easily put pen to paper. So in the last section of the book, for example, I talk about addiction. And I actually talk about it in the context of a theory that I think is, well, it's there in Plato. It's, it's worked out a little bit in Rousseau, a theory of the relationship between supplements and substitutes. And I talk at length about social media and Facebook, though I'm not necessarily picking on Facebook. And and what I say is, isn't it interesting that in Facebook, for example, you have this thing called Facebook friends. Well, what what is the meaning of a Facebook friend or a social media friend? Or alternatively, what is the meaning of online shopping? Well, there's clearly a referent. In the first case, the referent is friendship. In the second case, the referent is shopping. And what I'm trying to suggest is that liberal competence involves that sort of thing, developing the competence to to know what friendship is, to know what the connoisseurship associated with with shopping. And I give, I think, eight or 10 other examples there. And what I'm saying is that the the knowledge that we most need is, is not something that can be reduced to a book or to a recipe. It's something that has to be practiced and it's, it's not going to be pretty. You know, when we're really living with our neighbors, we're going to say things that, that we're going to regret and they're going to say things that they're going to regret. And we're going to have to figure out how we get past the, the injuries and the insults that occur. And what I've found is that people are less and less willing to put up with that sort of thing. There's a fragility uh, in our world today where people are, are frightened to have real-time encounters with all the bumpiness that that entails. And so just the smallest of examples, so many of us now instead of picking up the phone and calling our friends or our family, we will text message and say, hey, do you have some time that we can talk maybe later on this afternoon? So you set up appointments even to, to talk on the phone. Now, this is really remarkable. What it suggests <laughs> is that we're, 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 we're frightened to death of real-time encounters. And that's why I think people are text messaging all the time because you can respond, you can be witty, Something comes in, then you can sit up and think about it and be witty and ironic. But, you know, if if you just responded with a voice call, you might say something really stupid and people are afraid to make mistakes. And I think this is one of the things we have to understand about liberal competence. It presumes that we're going to make a mess of things. And the question is, is it okay to make a mess of things? Tocqueville says in, in Democracy in America, local communities are composed of coarser elements. 
And he goes on to suggest that enlightened people, the enlightened elites, are going to be very troubled by the, the numerous blunders with freedom. I think this is the question we have to pose. Do we believe that life is big enough so that once we make a mistake, we can redeem the mistake or there can be forgiveness? And I think the, the collapse, the diminishment of Christianity, and therefore the diminishment of the category of forgiveness and redemption has brought us to a world where we're frightened to death to do anything. I say Christianity provides a way for there to be a tomorrow. I mean, this is the great question. How can there be a tomorrow? Hmm. This is something question that Nietzsche wrestled with in, in the genealogy of morals. You know, the weight of guilt, if man is broken, that means the weight of guilt keeps growing on your shoulders. And if there's no way to have a tomorrow, then, then it ends right there. You end it with a great exhaustion. I think that's where we are. And, and the Christian formula here is there is a way forward. It's a glorious way forward. It's you know, the, the Good Friday of the catastrophe of human relations is redeemed by Easter Sunday. And if we lose sight of that, then you get this weight that keeps growing and growing and growing. I see this in America. I see this in Europe. Uh, the Europeans feel so guilty about their nations and about the colonialism, two world wars and the Holocaust. And they have no Christian way of having a tomorrow. And so the deal they've cut with themselves is the way we will have it tomorrow is by renouncing all the institutions which heretofore were the cause of, of all sorts of problems that we had. So we're going to renounce the nation. The EU project is, is really, it's a d deeply distorted Christian project. Uh, they can't have Christian atonement anymore, but what they can have is a release from the burdens of the past by renouncing their nations. And that's the bargain they have made. And Tilk feels very clear on this. We, we are embodied incarnate beings. And what that means is we have to live in these embodied communities. The whole of democracy in America is really an attempt to show us that notwithstanding the temptation to live in this universalist frame of mind the French Revolution inaugurated, notwithstanding that temptation, we have to live in these embodied communities. But then what happens when, when the weight of everything that has transpired in these embodied communities becomes so grave that you can't have it tomorrow? Well, that's one of the reasons why we're renouncing our statues, renouncing our history, renouncing the family, renouncing Christianity, anything that has a stain with, associated with it, we have to try to purge. And this is, a, this is a radical project. This is far more dangerous than Marxism. Marxism could never take hold in America because America is a property-loving society. And the category, the center category for Marxism is property and mm -hmm. the need to destroy it. That was never going to take hold. Right. Ah, but identity politics, that's different because that deals with guilt. And Americans have immense guilt. All human beings have guilt. And the question is whether there's a Christian way to have it tomorrow or whether the way forward is to forget and renounce all those institutions, those imperfect institutions of the past that got us this far uh, in order to cleanse ourselves of the, of the weight of guilt that we can't seem to get rid of. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. My guest is Joshua Mitchell, professor of political theory at Georgetown University. We're discussing his new book, American Awakening, Identity Politics and Other Afflictions of Our Time. I think one of the places where I really felt the full force of your work was actually in the concluding chapter where you declare, and I think I, I might be paraphrasing a little bit here, but the next great struggle between state and society in America will be over whether the conventional generative family is so implicated in transgression that it obstructs the emergence of the next generation of innocence. Let me just repeat that for our listeners again so they can listen to it again. 
The next great struggle between state and society in America will be over whether the conventional generative family is so implicated in transgression that it obstructs the emergence of the next generation of innocence. Would you help us understand this? Well, I'm glad you found that passage. It actually, as I wrote it, or as it wrote itself and I watched, which is really what happened there, I realized I was making a bold claim and I wanted to make sure I was something I truly believed and I do. You know, what I see, I see a couple of things. I see young men and young women who are told that if you are, uh, if you think of yourself as a man and a woman, especially if you're white, you've got real problems. You're, you don't get any innocence points. And so I could imagine a whole generation of young people desperately looking for cover And the way they can do this is to say, for example, I'm gender fluid. Because as soon as you do that, then you become among one uh, members of the innocent group. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole generation of younger people who walk into high school, junior high school, and they say to their friends, well, today I think I'm a two on a scale of masculinity and tomorrow I'm a four. And this, this allows you to say, I'm not heteronormative. So that's the first thing. So you are told very early on that there is a certain transgressor category and boy, you better find a way to escape it. I think climate changeism, as I call it, is also another way. So you can say, oh, well, I'm white, I'm a male, I'm, maybe I'm a white female, I'm reasonably well off, uh, but I'm, I'm burdened by these people who use these fossil fuels. And so I'm a victim of capitalism or technology that uses carbon. I mean, it's really remarkable. Everybody's desperately looking for cover. And the younger generation especially knows because they've been told, you know, if you're a white heterosexual male, there's nobody's going to listen to you. You have nothing to say. Go play a video game. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is in talking to parents whose children come home and say, well, I think I'm this today. Or, and, and now I'm, I'm going to insist that you use the pronoun they. They're baffled. It's not only that they're baffled, they're scared because these kids who come back and declare this have a huge professional apparatus backing them up. It's counselors, even, even at Georgetown, we've got all, all the deans have insisted that they put the pronouns that they want to use at the bottom of their letters, their mm-hmm. letterhead. Mm-hmm. There's immense pressure then by professional groups who have a great deal to gain. Remember Hobbes? Hui Bono, who benefits. There, there's immense professional class who are, who are ready to pounce on this. And so parents who, who know there's something wrong when their children come home and say, please call me they, they're impotent and they're scared because a lot of these parents are committed ostensibly to social justice. They just never thought their kids would come home and say, I'm a they. And so they're petrified. And so how do you then say to your child, you know, maybe you need to think about this, you know, the, the strangeness of life, as I say throughout the book, I mean, there's, uh, the strangeness of life, it overwhelms us in many ways, but to reduce it to sexuality is a terrible, terrible mistake. I mean, Tocqueville talks about the strangeness of life. The whole of, of the allegory of the cave in Plato's Republic uses the distinction between what is familiar and what is strange. And Plato says that from the vantage point of outside of the cave, the, the familiar world that we live in truly is strange. So this interplay between strangeness and familiarity is a long historical pedigree. But now when, when a child feels strange, they're told, oh, it must be because you have a sexual predilection for this, that, or the other thing. And so everything gets reduced to sex. The parents are unarmed with this. They, they're uneasy about this. They want to say to their kids, no, but they can't because they're committed to social justice and there's a vast apparatus 
uh, of the state now that is invested in ripping kids away from their family. You know, Horkheimer and Adorno, the, the Frankfurt School, I mean, they knew that to destroy bourgeois life, you would have to destroy the family. Well, they were unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. This might be, a, be successful. Mm-hmm. Because if your child declares that they are among the innocents, then you are a transgressor for even doubting them. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. My guest has been Professor Joshua Mitchell of Georgetown University. His book, American Awakening, Identity, Politics, and Other Afflictions of Our Time, available now from Encounter Books. Professor Mitchell, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. My pleasure. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.